Welcome to Inside the Vatican with American Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This week, we'll update you on an investigation into Vatican finances. Then, we'll talk about the 50th anniversary of the Jesuit social justice operation and how understandings of evangelization are changing. Finally, we'll talk about what to expect when the U.S. bishops visit Rome over the next few months. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New York, Jerry. Good afternoon from wet and gray skies of Rome. We've got the same thing here. Um, Let's get started on our first story. So first up, we have an update on the Vatican's financial scandal. Just a quick recap for our listeners. You might remember that the Vatican police raided several top offices of the Vatican and suspended several employees as part of an investigation into a $200 million purchase of this warehouse that would be developed into almost 50 luxury apartments in London. Um, Documents leaked to the press about a month ago suggested that Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu diverted funds from Peter's Pence collections. Those are the collections that are taken for the poor and for running the Vatican from dioceses around the world. And he used those for the purchase of those apartments. Uh, Cardinal Becciu was the number two man in the Vatican Secretariat of State when this deal was made. And this week he denied any wrongdoing in this. So, Jerry, this is a really complicated story. It feels like we just get information piece by piece. And this week, Cardinal Becciu said that Peter's Pence is used for continuing the church's ministry work and that investing in real estate in order to make more money to continue that work has always been part of the Vatican strategy ever since the time of Pius XII. So it sounds like he's saying that he did use this money from Peter's Pence to help buy the property, but that that's okay. Is that how you understand his comments? Cardinal Becciu, he was then archbishop, was the number two in the Secretariat of State, or the number three official in the Vatican, if you count the Pope as number one. Kind of a chief of staff. He's responsible for the general affairs of the church. And one of his responsibilities at that time was handling this fund. And he invested in what he believed was a good investment in London to buy part and later the Vatican later took it over, but in this last year, a storehouse which had been part of Harrods in London. It seemed a good investment. It seemed a clean investment. In other words, it wasn't being used for for arms dealing. It wasn't used for non-ethical purposes, etc. But there were aspects of it that are not clear. The man who was used and his company as a mediator, as a go-between, ended up by getting 138 million euro out of it, I think. I'm not certain of the figure, but it, it was quite a considerable sum of money. They had part of the property first, the Vatican owned part of the property. But then when the with Brexit and the crash of the sterling, etc., the property seemed to be losing. And so the Vatican's way of resolving was to gain the complete control of the the property. So they needed a loan to do this. When they asked for that loan from the Vatican Bank, that's when the red light started flashing and said, where is this money going? Who is dealing with it? Is it a sound investment? So the Vatican eventually got this property, but the investigation into those who were involved, the officers that were involved with the operation, there was an investigation. The police raided the officers. We've reported on this already. Jerry, I'm um, 
I need a little bit of help understanding this. So which exact part of this deal was it that that is so concerning to the investors? What part of it uh, is is the red flag? Well, the go-between man seems to have made a lot of money. And if anybody has made money, it's this person or his group. And there seem to be a number of shell companies. So it's difficult to actually have clarity who was moving what. But the concern is that this information that was maybe meant to generate more funds for the Vatican didn't end up doing that? Yes, but uh, this could be part of the fin- the economic conjuncture where you had Brexit, you had a crash in the, the sterling going down in value, property values going down in London, etc. There were a, a number of factors. But uh, what the prosecutors are trying to work out, first of all, was there some mishandling, improper dealings, illicit dealings, where some people taking advantage of the Vatican, were some people investing unwisely. We have many questions. We have few answers at this moment. I, I think maybe in, in, maybe in another month, we will have many answers to this. Now, I think it's important. Five people were suspended from their services for six months, I think. None of them has yet been indicted. So none of them has been accused. Right. Cardinal Becciu is not, to the best of our knowledge, yet under investigation. But Cardinal Parolin came out with a comment after Cardinal Becciu said he had done everything right. We should say Cardinal Parolin is the Vatican's current Secretary of State. Yes, he's like the Prime Minister, you might say. He, he came out and said that this is an opaque operation. We depend on the magistrates to clarify it. So that is where we are today. We're waiting for the prosecutors to finish their investigation and come out and say, we have reached this conclusion. Will they charge some people with improper dealings? We don't know. We're still waiting. So anything else is speculation to say this one is accused, that one is accused, that one is accused. Nobody is at present accused. An investigation is underway. And so nobody has been indicted. Right. We talked last time about how this is a really important idea to Pope Francis and the way that he operates, where we don't want to assume guilt. Um, and that's part of why he was upset about this information getting out, because it can lead to kind of a trial by the press. The Pope is determined, and he's told the, the prosecutors, Please go get to the bottom of this. We, we, we need transparency. We need that the Catholic people can trust that when their money comes to the Vatican, it is used honestly and wisely, and it's used for good purposes. So we'll keep you updated on the information that we get and this continued investigation into Vatican finances here on Inside the Vatican. And you can follow our coverage at americamagazine.org. second story, this week the Jesuit headquarters in Rome hosted a World Congress to celebrate 50 years of its Secretariat of Social Justice and Integral Ecology. So that marks 50 years since the Jesuits took this decisive turn in the direction that most people know them for, um, which is advocating for social justice and working with and for people on society's margins, taking up Vatican II's call for a preferential option for the poor. Jerry, you attended this meeting on Monday, November 4th, and you spoke with the head of the Jesuits afterwards. What struck you about this gathering? First of all, I went into the opening of the meeting, and you have 210 Jesuits and activists 
who are working with the Jesuits from 62 countries attending the meeting. These are the people on the front line. 37% of the 210 are lay people, lay men and women. And the beginning was really, I, I think, deeply moving because they had a, a kind of a chant, you know, with a big heart, we, we work for justice, etc. But they had on the screens the pictures of 59 Jesuits who have been killed in the struggle for justice and for integral ecology in the world. In other words, for caring for our common home, for social justice. In these 50 years, they projected on the screens photos of each one with a short bio, what he was did and how he was killed and where. It was really deeply moving. Afterwards, in the afternoon, when we spoke with Father Sosa, the superior general of the Jesuits, and he was asked about these 59, he said, really, I'm ashamed that we have just done a book on the 59 Jesuits, because the lay activists, the men and women who are working with us, are an even greater number, but we haven't got their names together yet. Right. We're coming up on the 30th anniversary of the Jesuit martyrs of El Salvador, and I know they were killed with their housekeeper and her daughter. So, Jerry, in both the Amazon Synod and in this meeting of Jesuits that we're talking about, we're hearing a lot recently about martyrdom and this idea that there will be new martyrs in the near future if the church continues to side strongly with the poor. It's what we talked about all in our last week's episode. Um, and also a new book-length interview just came out from Pope Francis, uh, and he talks about martyrdom again in that. This weekend, he visited a catacomb for the first time ever in his life, he said, to celebrate Mass where he preached on modern Christian persecution. And so, taken together, it seems to me like we're hearing more about this, right? Um, and I'm, I'm wondering what that means, that increase in conversation about martyrdom, what it means about the direction that people like the Pope and Father Sosa see the Church heading in. In this synod on the Amazon, we heard of about a thousand people who have died in this way, indigenous leaders defending the, their people, defending their uh, lands. Uh, we are at a critical moment in the history. We have people being criminalized for defending human rights. We have people being silenced. We have people being killed. And uh, Pope Francis has said many times that we have more martyrs today than in the early uh, period of Christianity. And that is perhaps because the issues are becoming starker in a way. And the call to follow Christ can be a very demanding call in, in the modern world. Uh, I was really deeply struck yesterday with at the beginning of this to see these men and some women also, and lay people, from 62 countries who are in the front line. They're in the front line in the struggle for justice and peace and the care of our common home, protecting the world for humanity. He sees this is giving witness to Christ. Right. I actually wanted to ask you about that. He's he's often tying this idea of martyrdom to the idea of evangelization, right? That that standing with the poor to the point of even martyrdom is is a form of evangelization. And I don't know, I'm kind of wondering with some of the resistance that we were seeing during the Amazon Synod, it seems like 
at certain points we're running up against different understandings of what evangelization is, whether it's mostly educational, teaching people, catechizing them, and ultimately leading them to baptism, or is it is it something else? The Pope had an example about how, you know, if you help somebody dig a well while you're evangelizing them, that digging a well is also part of your evangelization. So I kind of wanted to toss this question to you. Do you, do you think that evangelization is being understood differently now under Francis or maybe since Vatican II than it was in the past? Look, in this new book that has just come out, which is called Without Him We Can Do Nothing, and the subtitle is To Be Missionaries Today in the World, the Pope recalls Francis of Assisi, who says, we preach the gospel by deed, by doing things, and if necessary, by words. And he recalls how Jesus went around healing, curing, uh, assisting people, restoring sight to the blind, doing things, and preaching. And he said, of course, preaching is an important part, because Christ says, go and proclaim the good news to the world. But I think there is a greater consciousness now. I, I think we're returning to the period after the Second Vatican Council, where there was this great enthusiasm, this great inspirational drive to work with the poor, those who have no place in the world, the wretched of the earth. And this has suddenly come back almost 40, 50 years later, and is now taking a real strong, striking, giving a striking witness to the world. And I think that is evangelization. The Pope said in his homily in the catacomb last Saturday, he said, you know, at the end, we're going to be judged by the charter. I was hungry, you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. This is the fact that the Pope Francis is pushing very clearly and reminding Christians that Christianity is not about an idea. It's about following the way that Christ blazed in history. And it's exactly that, that we also saw this uh, Jesuit secretariat, this Jesuit commitment um, getting trying to get back in touch with, I think, you know, 50 years ago and, and continuing that work today. Well, they said at the beginning of this, I cannot remember, maybe it was Father Sosa recalled, that Father Rupe started the social secretariat 50 years ago after his experience in Japan, where he witnessed the dropping of the bomb, the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. This was the limit of the destructive power of mankind on the fellow man. And he, he came back and he felt we have to work to help people in situation, but also to change consciences, to change people's way of looking at life. And Francis, now with the Synod on the Amazon, he has made very clear, and the, the Synod has come out very strongly, that part of the challenge from the Synod of the Amazon is to get people to look at reality with open eyes to change the culture, to change the way of acting. And th this is where, of course, there will be clashes. This is where people will die in, 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 in the process. But it is giving witness to Christ. Yeah, I think we'll be learning 
more about this and and kind of understanding Francis's approach to evangelization and also, you know, see how affected that he's been by by that same destruction that we saw in Hiroshima um, when he goes to Japan in a couple of weeks um, to visit that site. So we will keep you updated on that and the whole rest of this story here at Inside the Vatican. For our last story today, some U.S. bishops are headed to Rome this week to start what is called their ad limina visit. So these are visits that happen uh, every few years. It used to be every five years. Now it's kind of like every seven uh, that the national bishops conferences take where they visit the Pope and the different Vatican offices in Rome. And the American bishops are going to go in several groups between now and February. So, Jerry, um, the agenda for these ad limina visits used to be decided primarily by Rome, but now the bishops have a lot more freedom in bringing what they want to the table. Can you explain how those meetings have changed? Of course, the, the bishops will send in a report in advance and saying, this is what's happening in my diocese. But uh, what happens, Francis has changed the climate. It's made very clear to the officers of the Roman Curia that they are not above the bishops. They are there to serve the bishops. And when the bishops come, they are there to welcome the bishops and to listen to what the bishops have to tell them. He's insisted in the synods, you must listen. He's insisted in the Roman Curia, you must listen. You haven't got answers before questions are asked. So he himself, uh, he will have a meeting with all the different groups of bishops that come. There's Cardinal O'Malley and all those in Boston and the surrounding areas here this week. And he will have a meeting with them. And it can go on for maybe two hours or more. And in those meetings, he's doing a lot of listening too, right? In the past, the Pope would have prepared a speech. The head bishop of that group would give a welcome to the Pope. And then the Pope would read a text. That day is over. Francis now says, welcome. Now I want you to say what you want to say to me. Ask what you want, say what you want. And he sits and then he responds to questions if there are questions. He comments if comment is required. Uh, but it's a dialogue. It's no longer the Pope sitting and pontificating and instructing quite literally pontificating. Yeah, I've heard he usually uses a soccer metaphor, right? He says, you know, the ball's in play and whoever wants to kick off the conversation can and we'll just kick ideas around. Um, so we haven't seen any sort of agenda for this meeting yet, but surely one of the big things that will be talked about in this meeting is sexual abuse, right? This rocked the U.S. church and made waves all the way up to the Vatican last year. Um, but Jerry, you know, in the U.S., a lot of people think that the bishops aren't working fast enough to fight sexual abuse. That's kind of the prevailing thought. Um, and there are still a lot of questions that remain about how to hold bishops accountable for things like cover-up. And those are only beginning to be resolved with the first few investigations of bishops that are following the new guidelines. Um, but I know that in Rome, the American church is seen as being kind of pretty far ahead on this issue since we've been dealing it, with it for a long time. And um, so because of this, I've seen some analysts saying that, you know, when the U.S. bishops go to Rome, they're just going to be told that they're doing well on this. They won't be asked to take further actions. Do you think that's an accurate analysis? On this particular question of the abuse, I think uh, Francis will make very clear that there's no room for, let, for relaxing here. Everybody has a responsibility. And if one fails, his failure has an impact 
on the rest because they are partly put under suspicion, under, uh, uh, seen as perhaps also not being up to standard. So Francis will be very clear that there is no space for relaxation. Children must be protected. Bishops must be held accountable. And as he said in that last decree that he issued, everybody has a responsibility, priests, religious, everybody has a responsibility for drawing attention to abuse or denouncing somebody who has committed abuse. So it's a collective responsibility. And that's what Francis is out. Yeah, we we heard the Pope also say in his uh, early 2019 letter to the U.S. bishops, he said, you know, this also it damages your credibility. Um, and this was back when he asked them to make a retreat together to pray about solutions to the abuse crisis. Um, so we did just talk about sexual abuse. But the other thing that Francis addressed in that letter, which was the last time that we heard him speaking directly to the U.S. bishops, is uh, he addressed the division in the U.S. church and this need for unity. And he also emphasized the need for dialogue when he spoke to the U.S. bishops back in 2015 when he came to the U.S. So um, keeping in mind what we've heard in the past from Francis, what do you think that his top concerns are when it comes to the U.S. church? Is it unity? Is it synodality? I think it's very important that in the church, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, is the center of unity and orthodoxy. And some of the bishops seem to forget this. And it was surprising when, for example, Archbishop Vigano came out strongly. Some bishops came out behind him, but few came out behind the Pope. This reflects something on their understanding of the role of the papacy in the Catholic Church. And I think uh, this will be an issue that might well surface more than once. The American Church is a very important church, not only in terms of financial resource, human resources, but also it's one of the media capitals of the world, which influences how the church is seen. And then uh, when you have Catholic media that undermine the teaching of the Pope or bring it into question, this raises very fundamental understanding of what, what the Catholic Church is. These are issues I've heard mentioned here generally, not, not in relation to the bishop's uh, meeting, but it would not surprise me if, if somewhere or other these issues will surface. Because what's important is the unity of the bishops, that they are not polarized, that they're not aligned with political parties, that they see themselves as uh, united with the Pope and with their fellow bishops around the world. Yeah, exactly. It also seems like there's kind of a, a divide between the U.S. bishops and Francis when it comes to synodality. Um, while other bishops' conferences are, you know, we're seeing them listening to lay people more, uh, working with lay people on a large scale and considering changes based on those. In the U.S., at least in my experience, like we often see this pattern where the U.S. bishops will hear that, you know, a majority of Catholics believe in something that's opposed to church teaching. And rather than engaging in a dialogue, we see them kind of saying, well, those people are wrong. No dialogue, no nothing. And we don't we don't really see any attempts to to remedy that. And so, you know, I'm I'm wondering if Francis is going to push the bishops, uh, the U.S. bishops, to engage more with Catholics who are falling away from the church to kind of uh, create these synodal, like, listening, accompanying type of models. Well, first of all, the, the fact that people were not sharing the teaching of the church was true under John Paul II, 
and Benedict XVI. It's not a new phenomenon under Francis. No, and we should say that this is also true across like an entire political spectrum, right? It's not just, you know, left-wingers or right-wingers saying that they disagree with this and that. It's it's everyone. Yes. It's, if you go back, right back to when Paul VI issued his document on Humane Vitae on the uh, human life on birth control and such like. So it, it starts back there. So it's it's not a new phenomenon of Francis. But what Francis is trying to do is to get the bishops at the diocesan level, the priests at the parish level, to work on a more synodal, working together with the people, not standing above and giving orders, but working, realizing that each one has a different contribution to make a different role and to ensure that this uh, is uh, happening. So he, he's changing the model of being church. Do you think that's something that he might try to nudge the U.S. bishops on since we see so little of that in the U.S. church? Well, there are some instances in the U.S. church of this. Oh, certainly, yeah. But he at the Synod on uh, Amazon, at the end of it, he mentioned that Perhaps synodality may be the topic of the next synod of bishops. He says he's considering it. So he wants everybody to think about this. Well, he, he wants this new way of, of being church to, to emerge. And so it is quite possible that the next synod would be on this. And th this will involve a, a major effort by the bishops in union with the Pope to help the Catholic people move forward. Yeah, so we've had a lot of different things emerge since the U.S. bishops last had their ad limina visit in 2011. We have, you know, Pope Francis introducing this idea of uh, synodality. We have the Amazon Synod. We have the sexual abuse crisis. There's all kinds of new things. Um, and so we're going to see and keep you updated on what we find out about what they've been talking about. Um, another thing to watch here is that the U.S. bishops have their own national meeting in a couple of weeks, and you can follow our coverage of that at americamagazine.org. All right, Jerry, we will chat with you next week. Thank you, Colleen. I think we're going to have a very busy time from now to Christmas, so I hope our listeners stay with us. Yes, looking forward to navigating through all those stories with you. Inside the Vatican is produced by American Media at our William J. Loeschert studio in New York City. This week's episode was produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our news producer is Kevin Clark. Our audio engineer is Tucker Redding. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Noah Levinson. Our studio manager is J.R. Kronheim. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at americamag. For American Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you next week. 